The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. I think by complete coincidence, I'm creating a New Year's tradition by having the first episode of the year feature a conversation with the Museum of Flight's curator, Matthew Burchette. But here we are, the first episode of the second year in a row, and Matthew is back. (laughs) Now, have you ever seen those old photos of or videos of experimental airplanes from like a century ago where they would have like eight wings or some absolutely bizarre shape and you look at it and you wonder they expected that thing to fly well that exact scenario happened to me recently when i was checking out the museum of flights digital archives page which anyone can access through the museum of flights website checking it out just to see what was new because i guess i've become that sort of museum nerd now and the image on the front page just absolutely captivated me it was of a massive triangular kite that looked like an optical illusion or something i had questions and lucky for me i knew that curator matthew burchette would have answers My interest in this topic came about when I was just checking out the museum's digital collections one day, seeing what was new, and I stumbled on this photo of the Signet 2 kite. And yes. when you look at it, you just can't help but notice it. Can you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is crazy, is it not? Absolutely. It reminds me of an MC Escher piece. <laughs> yeah. That's what I keep comparing it to. Can you try to describe this? Yeah. Behemoth? So, it, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, and Behemoth is right. The thing was not small. It was like over 3,300 different cells. And now we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because, you know, if you're just tuning in, obviously you, you don't know what a cell is. So <laughs> let me start it kind of at the beginning, which is always the best place to start. So Alexander Graham Bell, you know, obviously is best known as a guy who invented and patented the first practical telephone. But what's not as well known is that he also started experimenting in kites in 1899. What he hoped was that his research on kites would help him develop a technology for powered flight. And so what he did is he found some inventions by a guy named Lawrence Hargrave. He was an Australian kite designer. And in 1893, Bell was like, you know what, I'm going to take some of these ideas and run with it. And Hargrave was building box kites. And I know you guys have always have seen box kites. It literally looks just like a rectangle in the air with open ends. But what Bell did is he took that box kite and added tetrahedrons to that basic shape. And a tetrahedron is a four-sided, three-dimensional shape, stick with me here, where each side is a triangle. So think of it as just a three-dimensional, I mean, it's a triangle. And what you do is you cover two sides 
of that triangle, and it doesn't matter which ones, and all of a sudden you have a cell. And that cell can be used as a kite. At one of the points, you tie a string and it'll fly. Now, a single cell doesn't fly really well. So you can add some string to it as a tail and it'll start to fly a little bit better. But the more you put cells together, the better it works. And so Bell cells were 10-inch spruce rods where he covered the two sides in a red silk and each cell weighed about an ounce. So in 1903, he wrote an article for National Geographic and it was titled Tetrahedral Principles in Kite Structure. And he said the tetrahedral principle enables us to construct out of light materials solid frameworks of almost any desired form, and the resulting structures are admirably adapted for the support of aerosurfaces of any desired kind, size, or shape. So that tells you exactly where this guy's going. He wants to lift somebody. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. So he's working on these kites, and he and his wife are up in Canada in about 1907. Now, just to set the context for people who might not know all the dates and all that, what what were the Wright brothers doing at this time? Had they flown yet or were they getting ready to fly? So in 1899, the Wrights were experimenting with kites themselves, but they were using, their kites looked very similar to what the flyer would eventually look like. In 1902, they're still working. 1903, they're still working. And they finally come up with the first, quote unquote, successful airplane in 1903, the the much known December 17th flight. So when you think about it, Bell is kind of behind the eight ball here. He's a little bit behind the times. But what he does is he puts together, he and some friends get together, um, a young man by the name of John Alexander Douglas McCurdy and Frederick W. Casey Baldwin, who were two engineering graduates from the University of Toronto, they were up in Nova Scotia, and they just happened to be family friends of the Bell family. And so Bell and McCurdy and Casey Baldwin were hanging out one day, and they were talking about how to get aviation off the ground, pun intended. (laughs) And Alexander's wife, Mabel, was kind of listening to them, and she said, you know what, why don't you create a research group to collect all of these ideas? And they went, that's a great idea. We don't have any money. And she went, don't worry about it. I'll give you you the cash. She ended up providing $35,000 to them to get this thing going. And just so you know what kind of, that sounds like, eh, that's a car payment. Back in 1907, it was a million dollars. That's a lot of cash to get this thing going. So here are these three guys. They've got these great ideas. They've got money, and they start recruiting people, including Glenn Curtis. And if you're an airplane geek, you know who Glenn Curtis is. Well, he also happened to be a motorcycle designer and manufacturer and an expert on gas engines. Um, Well, Curtis brought with him Augustus Post who represented the Aero Club of America. So now you've got all these people together and they're they're going after it. They've got some great ideas. 
they're they're definitely not as forward thinking as the rights were but for what they lacked in ability for a powered manned flight they more than made up for in size so going back to this signet kite that we're talking about that thing was 3393 cells and remember a cell was a 10 inch spruce rod so 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 which means that this quote unquote kite was 40 feet long and weighed over 200 pounds when they tried to get it to fly it was actually towed by a ship off the coast of Nova Scotia with a guy in it and it made it to 168 feet now the, the interesting thing here is that their flight of the signet was on December 6th 1907. So they actually flew it before the Wrights flew their flyer, which I think is is really interesting. Um, Now, here's a little bit of super awesome cocktail party trivia for you. The guy, quote unquote, flying this kite was a U.S. Army lieutenant by the name of Thomas E. Selfridge. And some of you may be going, so? Well, Selfridge happened to be the first man to die in a powered airplane crash when Orville crashed one of the flyers in 1908. And Selfridge Field is named after Thomas Selfridge. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's a an airfield named after him. Yeah. Now, for people who are more visual, by the way, I'll just I'll, I'll put links into the show notes and, and the the image for this episode will be this kite, but this is one of the things you got to see. And everything that Matthew just described, we actually have photos for digitized in our digital collection. So there's a photo, and I'll put a link to it, of the kite on the boat. There's a photo of Selfridge actually, it uh, looks like maybe just in the kite. It's not flying. It's in it, maybe adjusting something. And there is, there's also a photo of the kite in flight. <laughs> So it's, if you want to so see, cool. yeah, it is. I I just stumbled upon these. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance or if you looked into, we have a lot of things in our collection. If you happen to know where these images came from. You know, I don't. I am, I'm still, I'm going to still call myself new, even though I've been here <laughs> a year. So I've not been able to poke my, my head into everything. I will say this. I hope that we do have a picture of the circular kite that they made talk about looking like a UFO. <laughs> this thing, is, yes, it is so cool. And it's nothing but two. So you know what those um, Frisbees look like that are just rings? Yeah. Like those discs. Yeah. So yeah. take two of those rings and put a truss all the way around it. So it's, it's two rings sandwiched that sandwich that truss. And this thing looks to be in the photograph I've seen looks to be probably a good 25 or 30 feet across. <laughs> I would kill for a, a, a kite like that. It is so cool looking. This all reminds me. It's one of the reasons I really like the Holt grew collection, which is a collection of models that we have in our world war one and world war two exhibits. Yes. And I love the world war one one, especially because it is clear that <laughs> they are just <laughs> trying things. <laughs> when no you look at those planes kidding, they're like what happens if we, make it way bigger or way smaller 
or a weird shape. <laughs> what if we put the uh, engine in the front? Right. What if we put it in the back? What if we put it up? You know, yeah, it's just people were trying a little bit of everything because it's talk about it's not flying by the seat of your pants. It's designing by the seat of your pants. People know Alexander Graham Bell, like you said, from the phone, but they don't know that he was involved in aviation at all. And I know there's actually a museum up in in Nova Scotia where he was working, which has a lot of this kind of stuff in it. But people don't realize he did this. And also his wife, you mentioned. Right. You mentioned her. Mabel. She, Mabel. She was a big force in this. She bankrolled and, and supported and did all sorts of things with aviation. She was actually one of Alexander Graham Bell's students. And she had become deaf at the age of five because of scarlet fever. And Bell began working with her in 1873 when she was 15. Now, you're probably going, wait a minute, what's going on there? Yeah, there was a 10-year age difference between the two. But they fell in love and were married in 1877. They had four kids. Two, unfortunately, died. The sons died. So they, were, they ended up with two daughters. And it was when Bell was teaching that he started researching how to transmit, you know, voice over wire, that kind of thing. So he starts working toward the telephone. And so when he comes up with the idea for his telephone, it just so happened that the U.S. Centennial Exposition was in 1876. Mabel thought, my husband's telephone apparatus would be a huge hit. Well, Bell didn't think it would be. So Mabel bought a ticket from Boston to Philadelphia, where the exposition was, without Alexander knowing about it. She then signed him up for the exposition, (laughs) um, packed his bags, and took him to the train station under i'm sure some sort of ruse <laughs> and then when he when they finally got there and he figured out what was going on mabel being deaf you know here's here's alexander graham bell he's arguing with her no i don't want to go she just turned her back on him and of course literally became deaf to his protests and so he had to go and that's when his telephone really got out to the public i just i love that story it's like man that's a strong woman sadly when bell died in 1922 mabel slowly began to go blind and then died of pancreatic cancer less than a year after alexander died so it's kind of a sad story there but yeah you got to love her pluck for getting alexander out there into the real world with his invention Mm -hmm. otherwise we wouldn't even be having this podcast today that's true or it would be it would look very different it would be (laughs) or sound very different yeah it would be dots and dashes or something (laughs) who knows yeah give uh the speculative fiction people something to work (laughs) that's right you've mentioned a little bit about the aea that stands for the aerial experiment association right Correct. And you've talked about their UFO and their That's right. kites. What else can you tell us about what they were working um, on? So it was, according to Alexander, it was a, quote, cooperative scientific association, not for gain, but for the love of the art and doing what we can to help one another. Man, we could use some of that today, actually. That's a good spirit. Yeah, no lie. So in and of itself, the association had no significant 
commercial impact. They weren't there to make money. However, like we mentioned before, Glenn Curtis did go on to big things. Obviously establishing a successful aeronautical manufacturing company, any number of flying boats, any number of aircraft. The neat thing about the AEA is they they developed several different aircraft kind of in real quick succession with each member acting as the, the designer for each aircraft. So each person in the group got to kind of stretch their design skills and everything. Where they really kind of made a mark was in some key technical innovations, notably wingtip ailerons and tricycle landing gear, which if you look at Curtis aircraft, early Curtis aircraft used tricycle landing gear. So that's kind of cool. Now, they were only around for about 10 years. They In their charter, they said, we're, we're going to be around for 10 years and then we're going away. And true to their word, they did. So there's not a ton out there on these guys. So please, if you're interested in more of it, get back to our archives because some of these photographs are just remarkable. And you are going to look at these things and go, are you kidding me? Yeah, that that's what sparked this whole thing. Yeah, my attention. No kidding. I'm glad it did because this is it's a fun conversation to have. Absolutely. And and we've talked a bit about the digital collections before here on the podcast. Why don't we? wrap this up by talking a little bit more about it. People don't realize, first of all, how much work goes into digitizing. And if you want to hear about that. In fact, it's funny you say that. We write grants every year to help with the digitization, that's a hard one to say, process. It's not just slap a photograph on a scanner and go. I mean, in the very basic sense, of course it is. But we scan at a very high resolution. We don't modify the images in any way other than to to sometimes color correct to make the image look like it is as we have it so we're not if it's a color image we're not changing you know the blues to greens or anything like that but it's a long process because it takes a while to scan at such high res and that's so we can or researchers can look at these photographs blow them up and and try to pick out some of these details if there's anything on the back you know, that gets pulled into the metadata. It's just something that doesn't take overnight. As we were talking, I asked, well, how many images do we have? And, you know, our our archivist kind of looked at me and she went, probably millions. And I was like, are we ever going to be done with digitization? And she kind of laughed and said, no, probably not. (laughs) You know, it's just... It's just one of those ongoing things, but it's something that we take very seriously here because you want people to have access to the things that we have access to. Exactly. We will hire um, archival students to do internships and turn them over with you know small to medium-sized collections and let them go to town on those things, and that just helps get things out into our collection and out into the world. Um, and that's wildly important. That's our whole purpose. The The days of people, of museums hoarding stuff are, are long gone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have it for you. Exactly. It's, you know, we live and die by people coming through the door or asking to use some of the photographs that we, we have. Because when you think about it, we have become the repository. Museums in general are the repository for 
collections that would otherwise just be tossed. I have heard so many times from people say, who say, I want to give this to the museum because my kids aren't interested in it. And they don't want to throw it away. And if it meets our criteria, yeah, we are more than happy to have it. So we've all, and I am the same way, we've all looked at these history books and said, seen that photo a million times. That's another reason to digitize all these collections so that people see what we have and see something new. And then hopefully those end up in textbooks or history books or whatever. And then everybody gets to see them. So it's just all the way around. Digitizing your collection is a good thing to do. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Matthew. Oh, you bet. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. You can check out the photos that we talked about in the museum's digital archives. They're part of the Alexander Graham Bell and the Aerial Experiment Association photograph collection, which is one of dozens of collections accessible to anyone, anywhere in the world, anytime on our website. I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you're further interested in these early days of aviation, next time you're at the museum, head into the museum's Red Barn exhibits, where you'll find a whole section dedicated to the origins of modern flight. And of course, you can check out Matthew Burchett's video series, Curator on the Loose, on the museum's YouTube channel or Facebook page. These are high-energy videos where Matthew spotlights individual artifacts like the museum's lunar roving vehicle or flying car, or he pits two artifacts against each other, like a duel between the World War II classic aircraft, the British Spitfire, and the German BF-109. These are great videos, and I'll have a link in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from, and then share the show with someone who'd enjoy it. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>